You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Hello and welcome everybody. Um, good afternoon. My name is Reema Patel. I'm Programme Manager of the RSA Citizens Economic Council. It's our flagship programme um, seeking to strengthen the voice that ordinary people have over national economic policy. I'm delighted to welcome our fantastic guest speaker today. Um, Anne Pettifor is Director of Policy Research and Macroeconomics, otherwise known as PRIME, and she's also an Honorary Research Fellow at the Political Economy Research Centre of City University. Um, Anne is a leading commentator and thinker on uh, economics and the financial system, as many many people will know. Um, she was one of the leaders in the Jubilee uh, 2000 debt campaign, which succeeded in writing off $100 billion worth of debts, um, which, which have been owed by um, 42 of the poorest countries in the world. Um, so, so many congratulations on that. Um, she was also one of the few um, to correctly predict the credit crunch of 2007 in her book, The Coming First World Debt Crisis, and has published widely on issues around public debt, finance, and the Green New Deal. Anne's got a lot of really interesting insights on, um, on, on the financial system as well. And she's published this book, The Production of Money, How to Break the Power of Bankage, and she'll be uh, talking in more depth and more detail about that um, uh, today. Um, so without any further ado, please give um, a warm welcome and a hand to Anne. Thank you. Thank you, Rima, ever so much, and um, how lovely to see everyone here at lunchtime. Um, uh, this is a really big, big subject. Um, how to break the power of the banks is an incredibly ambitious uh, project. Um, but I've written this book because, after all my work on global finance, on third world debt and so on, I spent three years at the New Economics Foundation trying to understand money. And... Um, and finance and the financial system. And I learned a great deal. But I also learned that actually I didn't understand what money was. And I didn't understand how money had got us into the frightful mess that we encountered between 2007 and 2009. Um, so this is what this book is set out to do. I'm trying to, ins- I want to make sure that there's a much wider understanding of how our money and monetary system works. Now, we tend to want to and can understand things that are rather tangible. Um, the, the notes and coins and the cash in our pockets or the credit card. You know, trade is something that's tangible for us. Coffee beans, cocoa, chocolate, all that kind of stuff. We, we actually deal with it on a daily basis, and so it's tangible. Um, employment, all of those other economic spheres are, 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 are spheres that we know because they're tangible. The financial sphere is on the whole invisible and, of course, intangible. And so much of our money these days is intangible. There's a campaign right now to ban cash, which I think would be a big mistake, but we'll get to that in a minute. But we could manage our monetary system without notes and coins. And indeed, we do. I'm rather horrified when I go into coffee shops and I see people waving little cards around and boom, they've paid for their coffee. And, of course, this is simply a bank transfer, transfer out of her, her account into the bank uh, or into the account of the coffee shop owner. 
Um, and that's, I suppose that's wonderful, but, you know, it does mean that, that this thing called money becomes even more intangible for us and becomes even more um, removed from our daily uh, lives. So I want to begin with just trying to explain what money is. And I want to assert from the beginning that money is nothing more than a social construct. Money is nothing more than social relationships. And as such, it's a man-made system, and I stress man-made here, right? It is a man-made system. And because it's man-made, we can change it, we can transform it. Now, it's hard to transform something we can't see, but we can try and understand this man-made system that um, that we have created to facilitate transactions and to enable economic activity to take place. And I'm a great fan of the system. I mean, incredibly unkind about bankers and financiers and private equity firms and all of that. But the actual monetary system, as far as I'm concerned, is a great civilizational advance, is a great human invention, and we ought to respect it and we ought to manage it. I I have spent a lot of time in poor countries, in low-income countries in Africa, where they do not have a monetary system. They don't have a proper banking system. They don't have a a central bank that they trust. They don't have criminal justice systems and judicial systems that uphold contracts. And they don't have regulated accounting systems, double-entry bookkeeping for, for assessing assets and liabilities. And as a result, they have no money. It's just as simple as that. If they had their own monetary system, and if it was upheld by the institutions that uphold our monetary system, they wouldn't have to rely on the greenback, on the dollar. And that's how wonderful a monetary system is. It facilitates economic activity. And economic activity means employment, and employment means income. So it's a really incredible institution. It's an incredible thing that we've invented. But, of course, we invented it way back. Um, The Florentines were the first to come up with the basics of the system, and then the Dutch learned how to manage it. And the Dutch learned that if we had a proper monetary system, we wouldn't have to to rely on robber barons for finance. So in the old days, before there was a monetary system, the old bad guys, the robber barons, would go around raping and pillaging and building up a surplus of something, rather corn, gold, or whatever you want. And they'd have that surplus in the vaults of their castles. And if a young farmer, an entrepreneur, wanted to to do something, they'd have to go to the top of the castle and beg the lord of the manor for some money in order to expand the plot of land or whatever the work was that that, that, that entrepreneur was trying to do. And the lord of the manor, the robber baron, would say, yeah, of course you can have some of my savings, but I'm going to charge you very high rent for the privilege of borrowing my savings. And by the way, I see you've got a beautiful daughter. Would you bring her up to the castle sometime, right? So that's how the system worked before we had a monetary system. And when when the Dutch and and the Florentines invented this system, you could go to the bank and ask for a loan and not be subject to, first, the very high rates of interest charged by the robber barons, and secondly, to kind of scrutiny of your personal life. What really mattered if you went to see the bank was, 
whether or not you had a viable project and whether or not you could be trusted to complete that viable If your name was Robert Stevenson and you were <coughs> thinking up a steam engine, you could go to the bank and say, look, I've got this big idea. It's re- risky because there ain't no railway lines for the steam engine yet, and I'm going to need on that. I'm going to need re- for that infrastructure to be built, but you know, there's this great idea I've got. Now, it's really fascinating that the Industrial Revolution kind of correlates with the, in, with the establishment of a monetary system and the banking system. So, A, it has a lot of, to answer for, and B, you know, it is the reason why we had an Industrial Revolution. It was why Robert Stevenson could get financing for his very, very risky venture, right? So, I want to begin by saying that, even while I'm going to be very critical of the system as a whole, But it evolves in the first instance on the basis of trust. Credo, credit, means I believe. I believe that you will pay me for this thing at some point in the future. I believe that you're reliable. Okay. If I'm not sure that you're reliable, if I think you're a risky bet, I'm going to charge you quite a high rate of interest because I'm risking my lending to you. But if I trust you, I probably, and your risk, your, your risk level is low, I'm going to probably charge a very low rate of interest. And so what the monetary system is simply a system, as Joseph Schumpeter superbly argued, as a, prom- a system of promises to pay. It's nothing more than that. Money is a promise to pay. That's all it is. And as such, it is a wonderful thing. So if you go back to the... And David Graeber's written a wonderful book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, in which he shows that we've had credit or money systems for 5,000 years. They weren't as sophisticated, perhaps, as the Florentines and the, the Dutch, but they were based on this thing called trust. So if you imagine a little village, you know, I would be the hairdresser in the village and I could cut hair, and my neighbor would be a thatcher, And I would say, I'll cut your hair if you'll thatch my roof. The question would become, yeah, I've cut his hair, and his hair will be cut, but will he thatch my roof, right? Will he just say, sorry, yeah, thanks very much for cutting my hair and walk away? No. So what we, what we arrange is a promise, a promise to pay. And what's absolutely critical in that village is that there's a third party, and it's the chief or it's the priest It's someone that everybody trusts, and, so, and they uphold that promise. And this is the way in which monetary systems evolved in the first instance. And, of course, it's based that the priest or the, the chief of the village was also responsible for checking whether or not a pint of beer was a pint of beer, or a yard of cloth was a yard of cloth. So we've always had these standard holders, these standard bearers, these upholders, these regulators of the system. That's what we've always had. And the magic of the promise to pay is that it facilitates transaction. It gives me work, it gives you work, and I can then build up in my, my cottage in the village um, a little promise, a little pot of promises. Right? I've cut a lot of people's hair, and what I, 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 I generate thereby some savings. Right? Now, imagine in that village... There's a bunch of hooligans, young lads, you know, they're probably sort of 16, 18 years old, and they like gambling in the village square. Right? And um, they're a bit of a problem 
because because they gamble, you know, they get the tensions rise, they get aggressive, they get um, bad with each other. And imagine that one of the old, um, one of the little young men goes to his mum's place, she's the hairdresser, and loots her pot of promises and says, don't worry, mum, I'm going to gamble it in the, in the village square, but I'm going to be able to come back and give you more. And she lets him do it, and he gambles away all her accumulated savings. Right? So that's the way our, our monetary system works today, right? Except that now the young men in the square are in charge of the system, <laughs> right? They're running it. They've looted our pension pots. They've looted an awful lot of our assets, and they're out there in the stratosphere beyond the reach of the village chief, and they're gambling with our money. Why on earth would you want to have a career of haircutting or thatch-making when you can gamble and make money? Right? Of course, you could lose it as well. As we all know, if we take out a lottery ticket, we can make a load of money, but it could also just go down the drain. That's the risk that they take. And now they're saying, sorry, but we know how this system works, and you just trust us guys, it's all going to be okay. We're going to get you a return on your pension pot. And guess what? You're going to be better off. Right? So the monetary system today is out of our control as human beings. We have left it to something called the invisible hand, the market. And the market is in of these guys out there in the system. Now, orthodox economics doesn't get money right. Orthodox economics thinks about money as a commodity. When I accumulate a promise from, the, from the, the Thatcher that he's going to pay me, he will give me a coin or a, a note or a piece of paper or a credit card to say that he promises to pay. So those things, that's money, that's what we see as money. Orthodox economists think that is what money is, not that it's promises, but it's these things that represent promises. And so on the basis of that, they turn money into a commodity. I've just had a big debate with someone called Jim Rickards, who says gold is money. But gold is not money. Why is gold not money? Because there's a finite supply of gold, very finite. That's why it's valuable, because it's so scarce, right? And that finite supply of money doesn't represent all the activity that we need to undertake in our village. Because we make promises to each other every day. I'll cut your hair, I'll paint your wall, I'll do this, da, 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 da. You know, there's quite a lot of stuff going on. And it's not equal to a limited amount of promises in somebody's vault. Our ability to transact is almost infinite. Okay, and that's the joy of it. We can just go, you know, when, when our governments tell us, and this is a meme that I loathe, and I really, if nothing else happens, we have to challenge there is no money. There is no money. Now, that's because everyone buys into the orthodox economic view that money is like gold and it's scarce, in scarce supply. What's not in scarce supply is our ability to do things. Keynes famously said, you know, in a monetary system, we can do what we can do. We are limited. We're limited by our own physical strength, our own intelligence, our wit, our abilities, we're limited by the ecosystem. We can't do more than the atmosphere can tolerate. There's just a limited amount of tungsten in the earth. You know, we can't go on creating iPhones for the rest of history. 
because there's a limited number of metals that we use in this process. Those are finite. That's what's finite. Our ability to transact with each other is not finite. So when someone says to you, there is no money, it's because they're in control of the system and they're deciding whether or not you get some of that. If, you, if you're allowed into this system, this monetary system. Um, so my book is a sort of on a mission to say to people, we have to understand this. And, and partly because we've been fooled into believing that coins and notes and so on is money, we, we think, and also because money is whizzing around us, and also because money is so close to us and important to us, it's our livelihood, it's you know, our futures, it's our ability to send our kids to school, you know, like there's huge emotional baggage involved there. We don't, we've forgotten we don't talk about what the thing itself is. And as a result, those youngsters in the square are out there messing with our money and controlling the system. They're in charge. We now have the finance sector is now acts as masters of the universe. Whereas we'd invented this social system to act as servant to the village and to the economy and to enable us to transact. Now, when, just before I go any further, I just want to, for us to understand completely what money is, I want you to think about your credit card. And this is the, the best refutation we can make towards, uh, at, at, at orthodox economics. When you go into a shop to spend some money on something, or you go on eBay, what you do is you flash your credit card. If you are entirely credit worthy, it's probably... I don't know where credit cards are these days, but I think it's probably a platinum card. You know, if you're the Saudi king or something, you probably have such a very fancy card. If you're just me, it's probably black or something. I don't know. There's, there's different gradations of promises and credit. Right? I am less tr trustworthy to pay than is the king of Saudi Arabia. He gets a fancier credit card. Okay? But what happens in the shop, I hand over my credit card and I say, this is who I am. And the shopkeeper says, this says here that you promise to pay. And furthermore, your bank will uphold that promise. And furthermore, you live in Britain, and I know you have a judicial system, which if you break that contract, they'll put you in jail. Thank you very much. And they hand the credit card back, and you put it into your pocket. You're not bartering your credit card. You're using it as a way of exchanging a promise and upholding the promise. And that is money. And it's magic. It gives you purchasing power. And that's the wonderful thing about it. So when I go to poor countries and they say, there is no money, unfortunately, we haven't got enough dollars in the bank and we don't have enough of our own money, I just think it's ridiculous. Here we have nations of... I mean, I, I love Nigeria. I spend a lot of time in Nigeria. Nigeria is made up almost entirely of entrepreneurs. 99% of Nigerians are entrepreneurs. When you come out of the airport and you drive along a long road over a bridge to into town, all along the road are entrepreneurs. And I remember being terribly impressed by them because one of them sold me Jeffrey Sachs's book on macroeconomics. You know? Where the hell did he get that? And what a smart guy. He knows there's people coming out of the airport that do macroeconomics. And then another one sells toothbrushes and so on and so forth. And yet there is no money in Nigeria. And yet there is massive poverty. 
and yet they can't pay for a health service. They can't pay for saving mothers in childbirth because they don't have a monetary system. What we are doing here in Britain, where we have an advanced monetary system, is we're allowing it, in a sense, to be dismantled. We've allowed the financiers to take our monetary system and play with it out there in the stratosphere and avoid the rule of law, avoid taxation, avoid a proper accounting of assets and liabilities. We do not know what assets and liabilities they have because, you know, they, they keep it secret, right? And that's going to break up the monetary system at some point. Now, before I end, I want to just, just make one point and that is the rate of interest. Because the other thing orthodox economists teach us is that the rate of interest is the result of the supply and demand for money, which is scarce. So when it's very scarce, then the, the price of it goes up. When it's plentiful, the price comes down, says, say, uh, orthodox economists. Well, I've just been reading a book about LIBOR. I don't know if you know about LIBOR, the London Interbank Offer Rate which is a rate of interest charged by banks to other banks for borrowing and lending. And there's been a huge scandal around LIBOR, a huge, like the biggest financial scam in history. And I don't think any of us yet have grasped how big a scam it's been, right? But the stories are beginning to come out. Now, the thing about it that's absolutely fascinating to me is that orthodox economists say that interest rate is a result of supply and demand, okay? It's not. The interest rate is something that the bank manager decides every time you ask for a loan. When you go in, he looks at you and says, you're creditworthy or you're not creditworthy. And he fixes a price on his, the risk he's taking to give you a loan. Right? And that's as it should be, in my view. So when everybody says interest rates now are terribly low, you know, are very low, they are for bankers borrowing from the central bank the taxpayer-backed central bank, by the way, they're not for you and me. If I'm going to start off a little enterprise, and if I want to build a, a wind farm somewhere, and I go to the bank, they're going to charge me 8 9 10% on that loan because it's risky, right? And they're going to make a margin between what they're borrowing from the, the central bank and what they're lending to us. And the banks at the moment are making a massive margin out of that differential. But at the same time, telling us interest rates are low everywhere. You ask any SME, any corner shop who's trying to get an overdraft. Overdrafts are at around about 22%, according to the Bank of England. Good. You're borrowing at 0.25% from, from the Bank of England, and you're lending to a small corner shop at 22%. Well, who on earth wants to grow Nike shoes or iPhones or any other thing when you can be making money that way, right? But the fascinating thing about LIBOR is that on the 9th of August, 2007, and I remember this day very, very clear. I know exactly where I was on that day. That's the day that bank lending and borrowing froze, the beginning of the financial crisis. Interesting, a lot of the public didn't hear that or see that. They stopped lending to each other because they suddenly looked at each other and they knew you've got far too many promises that ain't going to be delivered upon, Right? And I know I can't trust you anymore. And they froze lending. And it, I mean, this is almost unheard of in history. And the central banks had to come in and give them cash and help them through this mess, really. And, and all of the central banks mobilized straight away to help the banking system. But the really bizarre thing was that LIBOR kept going up and down. 
the interest rate kept moving. Now, how can the interest rate move when the banks are not lending to each other and they're not borrowing? So what happens with it? <laughs> so we had lads, and they were, they're all in their 20s, and they sit in trading rooms, and they're trading this number. Is it going to go up a bit? Is it going to go down a bit? They're speculating around that, right? And this number stays there, even though there's no money being lent or borrowed. The price, the price of nothing, is something that you then can gamble on. And, of course, what began to happen was Barclays Bank, the manager said, Oi, you know, we don't want our customers to know we're in trouble. We don't want our clients to know we're in trouble. So can you just arrange to push that interest rate down? And that's what they did, to keep, to keep the impression that the bank wasn't having to pay a lot of money. <laughs> Even though the bank wasn't actually borrowing, this thing was public and had to be publicly um, you know, manipulated to maintain the reputation of the bank. So what that showed us was how utterly ridiculous it is to say that the interest rate is a function of supply and demand and that it's not a social construct a decision made by a bank when making a loan. I think I must be time to wrap up. So I think I'll stop at that point, and we're going to have some questions, and I imagine they're going to be challenging. Thank you very much. I think, for me, one of the experiences that we had through the Citizens Economic Council and the roadshow that we ran were to talk to people about what they felt about money. Um, And um, one exercise I remember running was asking people to imagine what their reaction would be if I put a £5 note through a shredder. And and I imagine really what their reaction would have been if I had actually gone and done that. Um, They responded extremely um, um, angrily in some instances. They were horrified about the waste that that would cause and so on. They had a very emotive reaction to the suggestion that anyone would do that. And um, there's a narrative which is in your book about money, what it does, how it flows through a system, and so on. And my question is, how do we get to a place where we can have a conversation about money that moves beyond people's emotional feeling towards a conversation about what it does, who has the power over it, and all the issues that you articulate in your book. Yeah. I said, that's a really tough one, that one, because I don't think I know the answer to that question. Um, But what I do know is that the whole system operates in, in utter secrecy. And we just know that secrecy is bad. Right? You can't learn anything, you can't understand anything, and you certainly can't change anything if it's secret and it's hidden. And I don't know why it is, but... But it is extraordinary that most macroeconomic textbooks fail to deal with money, banks, or debt. So students are up in uproar, you know, the Manchester students and so on, are up in uproar because they have suddenly realised that they don't get taught about money, banks, and debt. So the combination of the finance sector would love to keep this a secret for much longer and, and the, the way in which the, orthodox, the economics profession obliges means that You know, this is hidden from us. So for me, um, the mission is, first of all, we've got to start asking the questions. We've got to try and understand this stuff. 
And when we understand it now, with Jubilee 2000, you know, we, we started Jubilee 2000, which is this campaign to cancel the debts of the poorest countries. And when we did, it was at the height of the loads of money era, you know, Thatcherism. Everybody said, you must be crazy. Nobody in Britain in the 1990s is going to be interested in the debt of the poorest countries, you know. And we said, well, we weren't so sure. And we, we spent a lot of time between the founding of the campaign in the early 90s and 2000 just preparing briefings, short briefings. And fortunately, the internet had just come on. on and, and we just shared analysis and briefings and facts and figures. And then in 1998, the G8 came to Birmingham. And to everybody's astonishment, most notably the prime ministers, 100,000 people turned up on the streets because they had got to understand how the international financial system worked and the international financial architecture and how unfair the debtor-creditor relationship had become. When we started, they said, oh, we don't, you know, those black people, they're all corrupt you know, and incompetent, aren't they? So, of course, they're in a muddle. Why don't you cancel my mortgage? Why am I cancelling? You know, so that's how we had an awful lot of that kind of debate. And then we'd explain you know, that your government... Uh, uh, allowed the banks to lend money to the Nigerian dictators and backed it up. And the banks that lent money to the Nigerian dictators said, we want government uh, guarantees before we lend this money. And when the Nigerian dictators defaulted on the debt, then the, the banks got compensated by taxpayers. And what that facilitated was exports to Nigeria, right? And we need to export because we want to buy iPhones and stuff and we need to balance our accounts. When you explain that to people, they got it straight away. And they turned up in Birmingham as mad as hell, really, and nobody could believe it. So understanding had empowered people. You know, and I'll never forget the Treasury say, saying to me, well, Gordon Brown had to hire extra staff to deal with the correspondence. And, and, and a civil servant came up to me and said, what the hell is going on here? He said, you know, I get letters on pink paper with little roses in the corner saying, dear sir, I understand when you calculated the net present value of new, how the hell does Mrs. Jones at, on her kitchen table in uh, Sussex somewhere understand all this stuff, you know? And I said, never underestimate Mrs. Jones and her capacity to understand once this thing is... Explained. So for me, it's about let's talk about this. And it's happening more and more. People are talking about it. And, you know, there are campaigns and things are happening. And, and I just know that. So that'll be enough. When people work it all out. And, you know, in a sense, that's what Brexit and Trump and Le Pen are about. People have worked out that, you know... Uh, we had a financial crisis. Uh, that Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher once said, there is no such thing as public money. There's only your money, your taxpayers' money, right? Suddenly, in 2007, there's a thousand billion pounds coming out of the central bank to bail out the banks, and it's not taxpayers' money. Where did that come from? And people, people know this is kind of... They, they don't understand it. And, of course, the central bank can create money out of thin air. It always has done, you know. And it's been doing what's called monetary operations for a very long time. But people are beginning to see there's something odd going on here. Because, you know, Mr. Hammond is telling us there's no money. He said last week, I don't have a pot of money under my desk. But then when you've got to bail out the banks, there seems to be enough money, right? So there are people are getting it. Unfortunately, they're reacting in a negative way. I mean, in a way that I think is, is, is worrying 
They say, can we please have a strong man to protect us because our government ain't, you know. So it's not a, always a good reaction, but, but that's le- largely because it, they haven't had all the stuff explained to them, it seems to me. Anyway, that's my rambling answer, I'm afraid, Rima. Um, one, of, one of the things that you've spoken about is, is the relational aspect of money. Yeah. And um, in relationships, there are often dynamics of power. Yeah. Um, so my question to you is, there's enormous power in the way you use money and enormous power in the way that financial institutions use money. How can we um, support people to recognise that power? And also, um, how can we support people to understand um, the importance of speaking truth to power and be able to do that? Yeah, I think there's the individual relationship of power in a, for example, in a marriage when, when the husband has is in charge of the bank account or whatever. There's that and how we manage that. And the wonderful thing about the banking system is that if a woman gets a job, she can, she can walk out and uh, go to the bank and the bank manager gives her money on the basis of her, not because on the basis of her husband, hopefully. Anyway, but the question for me, the bigger question is, a lot of people feel, oh, the monetary system is so powerful, the banks are so big and powerful, that what can we possibly do? And we have power. You have power. Every bank wants to be based in London for a simple reason. Number one, the streets are clean. Number two, there's a criminal justice system, so they're safe when they walk around at night. Thirdly, there's a judicial system that enforces their contracts. And what I'd like to say is if, you, if you're a bank and you don't want to pay taxes here, or if you're Amazon or Apple or whatever, and you don't want to pay taxes, that's fine by us. Go and base yourself in the Cayman Islands, but you ain't going to be allowed to enforce contracts through our judicial system. You oligarchs can't come here and do your divorces with your wives because this is a publicly taxed, payer-backed system, and we're going to be, we're going to be stroppy about who's allowed to use it to enforce contracts. Because you may want to operate out in the stratosphere if you're a financier, but in the end you need a judge who's going to clobber the guy that you lent money to and make sure that you get paid back again. And we, are, we provide that with public money. So we have power over these guys, but we tend to think we don't. You know. They want our taxpayer-backed institutions. And, part of, and, and, and they, you know, they want our central bank. Central banks giving them free money and very, very low interest rates for borrowing, essentially. And uh, they really love that, you know, so-called private sector, so-called free market sector, utterly dependent on, on publicly financed central banks. Right? But, we, but what somehow or other, because we're so in awe of them, because our politicians are so in awe of them, when we bailed them out, there were no terms and conditions. We just said, yeah, have the money, for God's sake. Don't allow the monetary system to collapse. Don't allow ATMs to close. Oh, if you've done that, that's, that's just all you need to do, RBS. We've given you the biggest bailout in history. And keep your shareholders, oh, yeah, run this as if it's just a private outfit, not as if it's been nationalised by the... Let's pretend it hasn't been nationalised, said Alistair Darling, you know, and subsequent chancellors. But this is our money, this is taxpayer money. And on our behalf, They've, abs- they've said no terms and conditions. So, and we as taxpayers say, well, you know, the government ought to know better, you know, be- knows better than I do about this stuff, you know. Um, so, so I might as well just go along with this. 
Sorry, I'm ranting, I'm sorry. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's very insightful. Um, one, one of the things that you, you've been um, talking about as well is yeah. trust. And, yeah. um, and this is very much an issue that, um, that is part of the prevailing discourse. Um, yeah. You know, the, the breakdown in trust, or at least perceived breakdown in trust yeah. um, between citizens and institutions, yeah. as well as economic institutions. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether you have any thoughts on how trust um, could be rebuilt between people um, and economic institutions, financial institutions, um, and what you think the way forward might be for for institutions. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've got big ideas about that, but it, it kind of might be a little bit too late, really. I mean, I, for me, what's very distressing about what's happening now is that we've lost trust in democratic institutions. You know? um, and we've lost trust in them because our regulatory democracy, if you like, has been hollowed out. Um, and so when the people think, I can't trust my government to look after me, to look after my jobs, to look after my kids who can't find anywhere to live, who I can't afford to send my children to university... And I can't trust my government to help me that with that. They turn to a strong man, and or woman, whom they can trust to help them. And you know, I think that's what what Trump is. And I, I really think we should not underestimate the feeling that there is behind Donald Trump. You know, it's all very well for the liberal cosmopolitan crowd to mock him and so on, but he represents those people who feel that their government was too keen to look after Wall Street and not keen enough to look after their interests, right? And then when you think about it, Clinton raised something, like, I don't know, a couple of a billion or something from Wall Street, and Trump only managed to raise £300,000 from Goldman Sachs. Can you imagine? You know, they, they funded this, this candidate who didn't, who didn't win, and the guy who didn't, they didn't fund is now offering them the government and saying, you know, take over economic policy in the United States, Mr. Goldman Sachs. Mr. Cohen, his name is C-O-H-N. Anyway, the point is that that loss of trust in, in democratic institutions is the scariest thing of all. Because we had that happen in the 1930s after the 29 crash. People lost confidence, especially in parts of Europe, in democratic institutions. And we've got fascism. People will go after a strong man whom they think is going to look after them. And, and it's because they're desperate because they've lost their jobs, they've lost their opportunities, they've lost their living standards or whatever. You know. So I think our government's fooling around with this stuff um, and, 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 and we don't fully understand what's going on and we're terribly rude about these people who voted Brexit and voted Trump and we refuse to understand that they have got a legitimate case about the failure of government to uphold their interests as opposed to the interests of the finance sector. So, you know, I mean, and the thing is, when you lose trust in government, in democratic government, oy, then all other institutions go with it, really. You know? And so it's, it's rather dismal outlook, I'm afraid. Thank you. Um, I'm going to open up the questions. If, if I could just um, ask for a question from a gentleman on the far left. I'm Mike Phillips. Um, Mike. I'm, I'm interested in how we actually develop alternative systems to right. the, the big banks. I'm, a credit, I'm involved in a credit union. Right. I believe very strongly in credit unions. But the problem is, at the moment, the regulatory system is yeah. making 
credit unions have to conform with the big banks' rules. Yeah. I think that by involving people in credit unions, you've, you've got a, a, a mutual where people can make decisions yeah. about how their money is spent, yeah. how, is, how it's loaned. I'd like to see credit unions do a lot more with the small businesses that you talked about in, yeah. in your, your village example. Yeah. Um, so it's credit unions... How do we develop alternative structures? Yeah. So I think that's what's really needed now. Places where people can have trust and yeah. build it up as a stepping stones approach. Okay. That's sort of part of it. I just want to and know how to is? break the power of the banks. Jill, Marshall, Jill. I mean, I want to, an answer to the question that's up on the... Oh, my God, I never answered it, did I? Okay, my name's Sophie Robinson. I have a related question, which is why don't they simply divide the retail and the investment banks, both here and in the States, where they could repeal Class-Steagall? It seems such a straightforward way of protecting us, and, and yet governments are systematically failing to do it. Yeah. And I don't understand why that is and why it can't be done and how we could bring it about. So can I just ask the big, answer the, big question, the, the last two questions first before I go to Mike's question? Um, and I'm really sorry, yes, that's what his builders talking about. Um, I mean, for me, the way to... to I, I do think understanding is part of it, but for me, the really big, big thing is to bring offshore capital back onshore, basically, is to get them to base themselves here and be subject to our regulatory institutions. They don't want to be based here. They want to be based in Panama, Delaware in the US, or Cayman Islands, or whatever. And we've got to, as I say, try to say that, sorry, but if you can do that, but you're not, you're not, going, to be sub, you're not going to be able to use our resources here. Um, and that means, uh, essentially, um, controlling and regulating the movement of capital across borders. Um, and I can't tell you... For me, this is, my great passion is that this is the thing we should all be arguing for, and I do apologise for not getting to it. Um, part of the reason why the, the young speculators can leave town and live in the stratosphere is because they're able to take the money out of town. They're able to raid our pension ponds and then play beyond the regulatory system. I'm, I'm saying they've got to come back here and be subject to regulation. And the only way you can do that is by managing flows of capital across borders. That doesn't mean to say that you control how much money flows across borders. It means you tax flows across borders. That's what capital controls are. Capital controls are different from exchange controls, which is you can only take so much currency of sterling out of, out of the country for your holiday or whatever. Capital controls are a bumps in the road of the movement of capital, of mobile capital. And that subjects them to our, to our regulatory systems. If there's no movement across cap, uh, of capital flows across borders. So there's a story which I, I found very poignant of a little tea shop in Dorset, in Highcliffe Castle in Dorset, where the council, who's clearly had all their budgets cut, uh, decides they're going to put up the tea shop up to, out to tender. And they put it out to tender. And the guy who's been running it's been running it for 70 years. And, of course, he puts a bid for it. And what happens is there's a global market. And a, a firm that's based in Philadelphia that's got $4 billion worth of assets comes sweeping in, takes over the tea shop, and leaves the local guy uh, you know, without business anymore and jobs and so on and so forth. Now that can only happen because the Philadelphia based company which has made money from all over the place can sweep in. So we have this very unfair competition between mobile capital and local capital where the local capital is the minnow in the market 
and global capital is the shark, and the shark comes and just gobbles up the, the minnows, and we call it competition. Right? Now, that's what's happened to Unilever a couple of weeks ago. It's about to happen to Vauxhall and so on. And it's by huge global private equity firms that are able to just move their money wherever they want. You know, if, if you borrow at 0.25% from the Bank of England and you lend to Brazil at 8%, it's the easiest way to make money. And this is what these guys do. And we let them do it. Right. So, um, so for me, capital control over the mobility of capital is really how we're going to break the power of the banks. And when we do that, we can, we can then regulate an awful lot of other things, including the rate of interest. And this comes back to your point um, about Glass-Steagall. What, and then there's all the regulatory ma- measures that we would bring in here, like Glass-Steagall, which is you've got to separate your, your gambling and your speculation with your own money, please, not mine, away from the, the day-to-day business of deposit banking. That seems to me kind of just common sense, and we obviously have to do it. But the banks are lobbying like crazy. They've persuaded Donald Trump to, you know, to destroy Dodd-Frank. They're now running the United States, um, and Britain is going to say, oh, we've got to compete with those guys. And so on. Anyway, that's, so that's what we have to do. Then quickly, uh, on credit unions, Mike, um, you know, I'm in favour of credit unions. They're just so difficult to manage, you know, because it's this business of managing money that's deposited and money that's taken out. And normally there's... And it's such a hard thing to do because a credit union hasn't got what a commercial bank has, a licensed commercial bank, and that is the power to create credit out of thin air. They can only do it with each other's savings. And I think managing that is incredibly hard, which is why a lot of credit unions go bust. So I would rather manage the banks and regulate the banks properly and say, thou can have central bank guarantees and support and licensing on condition that you lend money into the local economy on these terms and and conditions. So credit unions, I think, are a great thing where they work, but my experience of them is that because they're also... I mean, they're probably not resourced enough. Maybe if the government resourced them more and provided the kind of uh, skills and funding that they needed to... Because managing credit unions is a terribly difficult thing. You know more. It's about local people being yeah. involved in actually controlling the resources in their own community, which is yeah. where you started in some ways. Yeah. And uh, credit unions are part of the answer, and I agree with you. That, you know, yeah. they, they, they have to piggyback on, on, on existing um, traditional banking systems, etc. Yeah. But it's about developing a real alternative. I mean, the, the, the co-op bank was yeah. on stage, the alternative bank, but we know that which what, what, what way yeah. that's gone these days. Yeah. But it's about developing that alternative, yeah. so that you don't always have to bank with that West. No, so, exactly. I know, and the other one is that I mean, the other alternative which seems to be developing at the moment is the fintech sector. I mean, I've got I've, I've just trolled out a Monzo account, and it's very interesting to see the way that they're developing. Uh, Paul Tobias. Um, you are very critical of politicians and chancellors who say we have no money. Yeah. If tomorrow morning you were the chancellor, mm-hmm. uh, would you just print money? Wouldn't it become worthless? How would you cope with that? Provocative question. My name is Peter. Do you think that the blockchain is a method of helping the third world to be alleviated of their debt? First of all, I don't like this term print money. Governments don't print money. The central bank prints money, prints the currency, and so they should. But 
a government can issue a bond any day, right? doesn't have to rely on taxpayer funds to pay for something. They can issue a bond, and that bond can finance that issue of, of a bond. And, and, and they, can persuade, uh, they can talk to the central bank about buying the bond, and in the process, the central bank can keep the price of the bond low. Um, I like the idea that, that the bond is open up to the private market as well, because in a sense, that keeps governments honest. In Nigeria, where there's, you know, where the central bank is in cahoots with the government, uh, people, you know, there's corruption. So, so I think the market provides with us with some transparency around that. But if the government issued a bond tomorrow and said, we're going to raise, you know, I don't know, a couple of billion pounds, and we're going to build schools, immediately that bond will generate income. You'd have to hire private construction companies. They would have to hire people. They would start building. The, the, the construction workers would start paying taxes. Then, they, then they'd employ teachers. The teachers pay taxes. The teachers go shopping, and, they, and, and the shopkeeper pays VAT. The shopkeeper makes a profit, and then he make, pays corporation taxes. In no time at all, the bond is paid for, right, because of what is called the multiplier. And that's what a power the government has. Now, as what we see at the moment is that, as everybody's talking about today, wages are really, really low. You know, the, the government has used the opportunity of the financial crisis to lower wages, to make us competitive with, who knows, you know, with, with, with parts of Africa. Um, but the problem with low wages is that you get low taxes, right? So at the moment, we have weak demand in the economy. The government can't balance its budget because there's not enough tax revenues coming in. So the, budget, the government budget is like a seesaw, you know. When the financial crisis crashes the system and, and causes the private sector to fail and unemployment, business bust and all that and low wages, the, the budget deficit goes up, the budget debt goes up. When the, the private sector recovers and people start paying taxes again and, and go shopping again and corporation taxes get paid then the, the, the budget balances. It's got nothing to do with, I'm going to balance the budget by cutting spending. The only way the, the, balance, the budget will ever balance is for full economic recovery to take place. But above all, for employment, well-paid, skilled employment, because the thing what generates money, as you all know from your own experience, is employment. And this government is saying, well, we've got high, high employment, you know, but People are very low paid. They're now on insecure jobs, part-time, zero-hour jobs, and they're not paying a lot of taxes. So the government is cutting off, if you like, its own source of revenue and then saying, oh, we, there's no money. There's no money to pay for you know, the NHS or for social care. Right? If we employed a million nurses to look after all the old people in this country, a million nurses would pay taxes and they would go shopping and shops would pay corporation tax and it would pay for itself. It's as simple as that, right? But no, instead we say, sorry, there is no money. And, and, and so we have crises in the prison service. We have crises. You know, we have a civilizational breakdown because there is no money. And we have an advanced monetary system. And it, it isn't just taxes anyway. That, you know, taxes are a consequence. You know, we get tax revenues as a consequence of government spending. If government doesn't spend, there's... Uh, especially, uh, and especially when the private sector is weak. When the private sector is booming, the government doesn't have to spend. The government at that point should cut back. 
its, its involvement in the, private, in the economy and allow the private sector to keep the, the show afloat. But when the private sector is doing what it does at the moment, being dead nervous about investing, the British private sector just will not invest. As Mariana Matsukato, that brilliant economist, is always arguing, they're like mice. And the, uh, and the government is like the roaring lion, you know, in terms of courage, because, you know, business has to be really booming before these guys will take the risk of investing. That's why government has to do it. When, when, when the private sector recovers, everything's good. Um, blockchain. Blockchain is a system... I'm not a Bitcoin fan. In fact, I think Bitcoin is, is, is based on the ideology that money is like gold, right? And they love, the Bitcoiners love Bitcoin because they, they announced at the beginning that there was only going to be 28,000 or 21,000 Bitcoins ever mined. And so it's like a commodity. It's going to be a finite asset. It, what informs it is monetarist, old-fashioned, old neoclassical economics. Blockchain, on the other hand, is clearly a brilliant technological advance and a system of accounting, which I think could be very transparent and therefore very useful to us in the future. The question is, who's in control of the blockchains, really, and who manages it? And already there's been examples of blockchains being manipulated, etc., etc. But I think, in principle, the blockchain is the thing that's come out of this which is good, but Bitcoin is based on the old monetarist ideas of money is gold and you, you need a finite supply. And, it, you know, it was invented in the dark web um, for, the, 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 the rare, for the very necessary purpose of financing stuff drugs and whatever in the dark web that were evading uh, regulation. And as I tried to explain in my talk, you cannot have a sound monetary system without the institutions that regulate and, and uphold that, in, th that, that system. You know. Money, for me, is a social construct, but for Bitcoin, as money is a, is a commodity, and the commodity is Bitcoin. But the thing, the byproduct of it, the blockchain, is fascinating, and who knows where it's going to take us. But I don't think it's going to solve third world debt. But that's another story. Thank you. Um, well, I, th I think that's all we've got time for today. Thank you enormously, Anne, for your insights and your thoughts on you. some really, really pressing questions. Um, a huge number of them, I think, are still quite uncertain. There's always an element of, of, of really understanding how... Um, development such as Bitcoin and so on will develop in the future. So, um, sure. you know, it's, 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 it will be interesting to see how some of these things develop in the future as well. Thank you very much for all your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the rsa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.